this year of Revelation is more than just a book. Uh, that is going to grab the majority of the year, but it's more than that. And I hope that you saw that from the video. I hope you understood and caught the vision that revelation means the unveiling or the opening up of or taking the lid off. And I would hope that you begin to examine things that God wants to change in you. Um, but we do have before us the task of studying this book. My job and my goal for you is to make it understandable. My goal is to simplify, boil down Revelation to where you're going to walk out of here and go, gosh, I totally get that. I can absolutely work with this. It's not too hard for me. I can wrestle with it. I may not understand everything about it, but I know a lot more. That's kind of my goal. So if you would take out the handout sheet in front of you, we can kind of begin the one that was handed to you as you walked in the door. And you will see that I entitled today's message as part one of Revelation, On the Brink. Basically that John, whoever that is, we're going to discuss that in a moment, wrote on the edge of a massive break in the world of persecution of the Christian church. He was right on the brink of the world for the church changing dramatically. And so as he writes this, it is very timely. It's very important. It's a huge deal to those recipients that receive that. But I believe that it's also something that can teach us throughout all the years and something we need to read and wrestle with and learn from right here, right now. So as I begin, I want to uh, give you the fill in the blank for one primary reason. We can't get caught up in the details and lose the point of the book. Of all books in the Bible, this is one of those that everyone gets lost in the details. And they do not keep in their heart why this book was written. So I want to make it very plain to you. I want you to write it down on your notes. Here, from my opinion, is the heart of the book of Revelation. Here it is. Fill in the blank. The ultimate message of the book of Revelation is a message of hope. The ultimate message of the book of Revelation is a message of hope. When I get done today, I hope that all of us see that differently. When I was growing up, this book was not a book of hope to me. It has never been taught as a book of hope. It was taught as something that would inspire fear. It was taught as a scary thing. It was taught about the end of the world to try to scare me, to motivate me to do something. Whether that was evangelistically, whatever it was, I was always afraid I was not going to open this book in my own devotions. I was not going to read it on my own. I saw destruction. I saw terror. I saw fear. I missed the core of why this book is in the Bible. It says at the beginning and at the end, this is an encouragement. This is hope. And I missed it entirely. I never had anyone display it to me in a hopeful way. And I would hope that all that is going to change. I would hope that all of us learn together what this book is really here for. Do you all understand? I don't have all this nailed down. I mean, you're going to go, well, you're just saying that. No, I'm <laughs> really serious. I don't know how to be more serious. As a matter of fact, in preparation for this study, I had to do not only a dramatic amount of research, where book upon book upon book upon book, I mean, I carry around a stack of books like this to study this. But beyond that, I wanted to saturate myself in this book. So I read it in one setting, beginning to end, over and over and over and over. It was not until I made through it maybe the eighth time that I began to jot down and write out a outline to try to say, what is it saying? I, it, there's a lot of crazy imagery. There's a lot of stuff. But what is the heart of it? What is the basics? If I was to chop it down to its core elements, what is it really like? And I organized it out into a six-page outline. From 22 chapters, that's pretty good. When I got done, it was the first time in my life and this only happened last week. First time in my life when I sat down, I breathed in, I went, I can do this. Understand, I'm learning with you. That's what we're doing. We're doing this together. 
I know all the systematic approaches. I know all the views. I know what I've been taught my whole life. But I am not interested in bringing that forward. I'm interested in engaging with it afresh. I would love if all of us could set aside our preconceived ideas and re-engage with the book of Revelation and say, God, what are you trying to tell me? Because if you walk in with your predisposed ideas, you're going to read everything into the text. And you're going to just assume that everything you believed before is absolutely right. You can't wait for me to confirm it. Here's kind of a belief that is going on. I received a text yesterday from a gentleman, a wonderful guy in this church. And he texted me and he said, I invited my friend to come to church because we were starting the book of Revelation. And they said, it's either going to be an awesome series or a total bust depending on Lance's view. Okay. No, 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 no. That's not correct. If we're engaging with God's word and we're tearing it apart, it would be a bust if all I did was spoon feed you one particular view and try to make you believe what I believe. But I'm not interested in making you disciples of Lance. I'm interested in making you disciples of Christ. That means we're going to go through it and tear it apart and see what God has for us. But please do not make this time together all about reinforcing your own particular pet view. That will not be sufficient. That will not be helpful. Okay, we got all that? Let's go right into the book. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. And the Bible is handed to you. It's going to be page 867. So, Revelation, where the last book of the Bible makes it real easy. Drop it all the way to the back and back up a little bit until you get to the beginning uh, of the Revelation. It's going to come right after Jude, but if you found Jude, you definitely know where Revelation is. Because that's the, one of the tiniest books in the whole Bible. So... Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the way we're going to do it today is read through the text, just the first four verses. That's all we're going to cover today. And attack the intro to the book. Lay all our foundation for how we're going to begin to understand things. Do the normal background context stuff that we normally do to start a book. And then at the end of it, if we have time, we'll dive right back into the word, the first four verses, and I'll explain a little bit more for you. So as normal, we pray for the word before we read it. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that we even have an opportunity to be able to read this book, study it together. Lord, and while it's raining outside, we are sitting here in a temperature controlled environment on cushy chairs, being able to discuss and debate in our minds what it is that was revealed to John. I pray that you would reveal it to us afresh, that we'd begin to have our eyes opened, our hearts opened, our lives opened to where we become different people just because of today, just because of what you have revealed to us. So Father, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open up this scripture for what is spiritually discerned that it would become obvious and that, Lord, we would be able to know you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, let's get into it. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, begins like this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, and he begins... That is what we have before us. There is only one comment I would like to make on the text because I believe immediately it will make a difference for application, and that is the word blessed. What does it mean to be blessed by reading this book? Do you get a super magical little thing you get to put in your pocket, right? I read the book, so now I'm going to get more money, okay? Uh, is there some dramatic blessing or tangible blessing like that? The word makarios, which is that in Greek, has a bunch of different ways that you can look at it. 
But it's the same exact words that are used by Christ on the Sermon on the Mount when he tells the Beatitudes. As a matter of fact, this is the first of seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. That word means fortunate. And then it implies a bunch of emotions. If you receive good news, how do you feel? Happy. So many translators translate it happy because you've just received awesome news that brightens your whole spirit and you feel great about it. That's all loaded in that term, at least. So happy are those that read this book because they're going to be extremely encouraged about what they read. It will brighten up their spirit and make them feel better. That's what this book is all about. So will that occur with us or will we all get depressed? I don't know. We'll see. All right. But we begin with a study of the book. Who wrote it? Don. John who? Ah, the who? The apostle. You sure? Okay. Here's how it goes. Uh, there's a big debate. There's been a debate in history as to who John is. You go, no, 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 John's John, because that's the name in the Bible. Is that the only John in the Bible? No, there's other John. John the Baptist, we know him. So we got him. There's extra biblical writings about John the Presbyter or John the Elder. And there's a lot of, as a matter of fact, that's an incredibly common name. John is not all that selective, right? So... You go, well, why, why is it not John? Well, we'll talk about that. But the idea is there's more than one John. And so people began to go through it. At the beginning, everybody thought it was John the Apostle. They kind of moved forward. All the early church fathers thought that it was John the Apostle. They even wrote down, I think it's John the Apostle. I mean, it's pretty clear. Who's John the Apostle? Well, we remember this guy. He's, in my opinion, the most colorful of all the disciples. I think he's, he's fascinating to study. We know more about him, perhaps, than most all the other guys, maybe except Peter, right? We know a lot about him. He's the beloved disciple, the one that Jesus loved, right? We remember that he was in the inner three, that out of all the twelve, the three went along with him. He got to see the Mount of Transfiguration. He was there in the closest place in the garden. That guy. Well, then why would anyone think other? If the early church fathers thought so, if it seems relatively clear, why would anyone question it? And who do they think it is? Well, they do think it's John the Elder. They even think it's possibly a pseudonym. You guys know what a pseudonym is? A pseudonym is where you just write in another name. So you're trying to make it sound important, so you change your name to be something else. So maybe it's Bob, right? Bob wanted to write a book called Revelation, calls it John, so he'll have some credibility. Other people just call him John the Revelator, right? Why? Well, because he revealed something, so let's just call him John the Revelator. Why is there any question? Well, it all goes back to one guy. Third century African bishop by the name of Dionysius. Dionysius changed everything. Why? Because he read the book of Revelation and said, it's not John the Apostle. And you go, well, why would that guy dare to say something like that? Why does one guy get to point out one thing and now everybody goes crazy? Because he's got a really good point. You want to know what the point is? You'll never see it in your Bible. That's why all of us, we're just like, John, who cares? It's clear. No, it's not. Because you're not reading it in the original language. I just had an opportunity this last Friday and Saturday to spend 12 hours in my Greek class. I'm getting sick and tired of Greek. I don't want to talk about it anymore, but I have to to make this point. When you look at it in Greek, there is a stark, amazing discovery you come into and you have to fight and wrestle with a problem. Here's the problem. The Greek in Revelation is horrible. The Greek... In Revelation is amateur. It is dramatically different than the Gospel of John and the three letters of John. Stark opposite. As a matter of fact, some scholars would put the Gospel of John into one of the most highly organized, orchestrated, and perfect written Greek, Bible, Greek books we have in all the New Testament. And these guys wrote the same book? You sure? Because it's horrible. 
As a matter of fact, one scholar quoted, Revelation is the worst piece of ancient literature we've been handed down from antiquity. Because of how it's written, how amateur it is. And you go, well, dang, that is a good point. (laughs) Okay, you're right. This does not look like this at all. And Dionysius said, what are you guys going to do with that? I'm just telling you, it's not the same guy. But yet, I will tell you, I believe it is. Why? Well, first of all, you can go on some of the easy arguments, which is there's a lot of same concepts. The word logos is used in a very similar way in Revelation that is used in the Gospel of John. And there's a lot of similarities in different concepts and language that is being used. Sure, a lot of that is true. There are, as a matter of fact, too many similarities, direct expressions. Not only that, but one of the major arguments is there's no other John in the ancient world who is popular enough to just sign the book John and have any authority. Do you understand this letter was written to alter things? It was written to seven churches that are all supposed to know exactly who he is and have the authority behind it. And he just signs a John. Who else is that powerful? Who else is that well known? So what do we do with the differences? Why are there differences? What's your guess? Anybody got a guess on that one? Why is there such dramatic differences? He's old? Okay, that's a good call. Because he is old. What's that? It's a revelation. It's from God. It's not directly from him. Yet he still wrote it. Persecution could be another one. What was the other one? Different genre. Absolutely. What's that? An editor for the Gospels. That's the deal. There's a scribe and an editor. Almost all the books that we have in the New Testament are written through a mediator. They're written through a secretary. The secretary, if you remember, even Paul's writings, remember when he said, I signed this with my own hand and it had large letters. Remember, if, if Paul ever stepped in and wrote on his own, it looked funky. It looked wrong because he just he's like, hey, I'm an intelligent guy, but honestly, I can't see worth a darn. So I'm going to write in big, huge letters when I sign it. In other words, he had he would talk through an interpreter to write it down. That person knows Greek inside and out. They would clean up everything. So they're telling, they're writing down exactly what he's saying, but they're writing it in good Greek. They're writing it in organized Greek. They're writing it so everyone can read it. But if you're out on a rock pile and you're later on in life and you don't have a secretary around, you're writing it in your own hand. Guess what it's going to look like? Garbage. As a matter of fact, I think it is not only so poor, some people argue, because he was coming from a Hebrew mindset. From a Hebrew mindset, a lot of that going through Greek ends up messing a lot of things up. So there's a lot of that in there. But I think, bottom line, it goes back to Acts 4.13. The disciples of Christ were ordinary, unschooled men. Do you remember that? These are not brilliant guys who are super hyper-educated. Paul was hyper-educated. These guys were not. So now you got old John writing in a big old crayon out there, writing this huge letter, and everyone's like, this looks like a kid wrote it. And he's like, sorry, right? Didn't have a whole lot of time when I was changing the world to go back to school, okay? So I would suggest to you that the dramatic difference is secretary versus non-secretary. And that would pretty much explain the majority of what we look at. Therefore, it is, in my opinion, the Apostle John, the disciple of John, and that gives it a whole new flavor. Why? What do we know about John? We know that his brother's name was James. It was James and John, the sons of thunder. That's what Jesus called them. You remember that? The sons of thunder, James was the first martyr, John was the non-martyr. He's the only disciple that was not martyred. As a matter of fact, there's a tradition, they tried to boil him in hot oil and it didn't work and blah, blah, blah. Is that true? I don't know. He didn't die. He ended up later in his life being exiled onto the island of Patmos, which we'll talk about in a moment. But then tradition tells us he moved back, became the bishop of Ephesus. But he had other special things about him. Do you remember? He was the only disciple at the foot of the cross. Do you remember that? He was the disciple who leaned back against Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. He was the one on whom Jesus looked down from the cross and said to him, Take care of my mom. 
Remember? And the whole history and tradition, even if you go back there, I had a chance to go over to Ephesus. What a wonderful place to examine. What amazing archaeological sites. I'm walking through this city, and sure enough, there is a tomb to John. Is it the same guy? I don't know. Mary's house is not too far away. Because he set her up. He took care of her. So in other words, he's super close with Mary, and he's Jesus' best friend. And he writes this. But this is not any Jesus he had ever seen before. This is the glorified Christ. And boy, he is not recognizable in the least. But how amazing is it to know this is the John? Tradition tells us that he died A.D. 100 or thereabouts. He lived a long time. So we got to talk a little bit about this. When was this book written? Well, we actually have a video. So, John, if you can get uh, this timeline up here for me, and we figured that it might be a little bit easier. So we got Christ's death at 32 uh, B, uh, A.D. And then let's go ahead and pause it right there, if you could. Um, here's a couple interesting issues. Um, after Jesus, this kind of gets us started, but right after him, there was a series of Roman emperors that came through the Roman Empire. And the one right before this was a gentleman by the name of Trajan. Some people make it super early. They believe that the book was written under Trajan. Some people believe it was under Nero. Okay, go ahead and hit play again. There's, a, there's another guy that comes out and... The sack of Jerusalem is in 70. Let's pause right there for a moment. People are trying to figure out when John wrote this because they know that the book is all about persecution. They know that everything is writing about everything crashing down on the Christian church. The two major emperors that persecuted the Christian church the most during John's lifetime were Nero and Domitian. So you go, well, well, who cares? Well, something really important happened between those two guys. That was the fall of Jerusalem. If the book of Revelation is all about the fall of Jerusalem, which is a majority view out there, if it all has to do with the fall of Jerusalem, then it has to be written before the fall. Otherwise, it's a lousy prophecy, right? We kind of go, hey, you remember that one thing? I knew it was going to happen. Okay, that's not effective, right? It's a prophecy. It's going to talk before. So what you believe the book is about will dictate when you think it was written. So you got half the scholars believe it's under Nero because it has to do with the, the fall of Jerusalem or go ahead and hit play. Or it doesn't have to do with the sack of Jerusalem and it can be under this guy, Domitian. Domitian is the other major view. It's the view that I hold personally from all the study that I've done. Why? For a couple reasons. Even though Nero wanted to be worshipped as a god, it was not instituted yet. It was under Domitian that emperor worship was punishable. You go, I don't get it. The Christians got persecuted for one primary reason alone. They wouldn't bow down and worship the Roman emperor. That's why we ended up getting thrown to the lions. That's why we ended up having so many problems. Because we were violating their state religion. Their state religion underneath Domitian was you worship the emperor as God. The Christians couldn't do that. So they ended up getting killed for it. Early church fathers said that John was exiled to the island of Patmos underneath this guy. So we have most evidence suggesting that John wrote underneath this guy's reign. Go ahead and hit play again. Where was he writing it from? This place right here. You go to Israel where Jesus was, and the map's going to take us kind of on a Google map. Just keep letting it run. And it takes us all the way over. That's the Mediterranean Ocean. The Aegean Sea is between Greece and Turkey. Turkey's on the right-hand side. Greece is on the left. One of the islands is called Patmos. It's 11 miles off the Turkey coast in the Aegean Sea. He was exiled there under Domitian for preaching the gospel. He got busted for it. They wanted to kill him in Rome, but he got sent out on a little rock pile, which is a Roman penal colony on this little tiny island. He was an older guy by this time. Go ahead and hit play. I believe that John wrote the book around 95. AD 95, five years before his death. 
during the reign of Domitian. Some people place it later. Some people place it earlier. But a lot of it has to do with what you think it is. Last slide. Go ahead and hit the play on this one. Why is it important? Because once we hit the second century, everything hits the fan. And Christians are persecuted like crazy. Does the book of Revelation matter to the immediate audience? Absolutely. They're about to be torn apart and they need some hope to get through their difficult times. And that is why I believe the book was written at this time. Go ahead and shut the video down. You've got to ask yourselves not only who wrote it, when he wrote it, but why he wrote it. Why do we need this book? Well, the first thing you need to understand is that John is a pastor. And he writes with a pastor's heart. John loves the churches that he's writing to. He's probably fearful for the churches because even though he's on exile over there, he's relatively safe. What about all his friends? What about all the people he cares about? What about all the people he's poured into? It's almost as if I was pulled away from you, thrown in jail, and I knew someone was coming after you. I, in my heart, I'd be panicking. And thinking, Lord, please protect them. The whole church of Bridgeway is going to be crushed in persecution. Meanwhile, I'm off in jail somewhere, relatively safe, and I'm panicking over you. In the same way, I believe that was John's heart when he began to have these revelations. Why God even gave it to him was all for the purpose that he would be softer in heart and be able to give them some hope and some encouragement. Well... Understand this, John didn't ask for visions. They were just kind of thrown on him, okay? So it's not him crafting a book and trying to say something really cool, and if he could only say it in this way, then the authorities wouldn't catch it, and he could get his mail out. No, I do not believe that. I believe John saw something and wrote it down. He heard something and wrote it down. I don't believe that he was crafting these images, that he was trying to work with the symbolism. I think God was working with the symbolism and God was giving him the images. I think he was recording what he saw and what he interacted with. And that's why a lot of it is so complicated. Do you understand? John didn't get it. A whole bunch of these things that he's seeing, he's like, I'm lost. I have no idea what I'm looking at. I don't know what I'm talking about. And I keep falling down in front of the wrong guy. Twice in the book, he falls down and worships an angel, and the angel has to go, get up. I mean, it's almost like John doesn't know what he's doing. John's just like, ah, he just falls down, right? Because you're amazing, you're big, you're beautiful, i got to fall down before you. And the angel's like, you don't get it. <laughs> Stop falling down. Stand up, because God's supposed to be worshipped, not me. So even John is on a ride. John is lost. John is trying to sort it out. Now, we may have a little bit more clarity than he does. Now we're 2,000 years later. Well, these are the only private letters of Jesus penned. We're about to study the seven letters to the churches. Do you understand those are the only recorded personal letters of Christ? Where he said, hey John, write this down. Now the Holy Spirit moved through him to write the, um, all the Gospels and things like that. But it was a specific verbal letter to specific churches, and it's the only book that's like that. This is an extraordinary book. The ultimate long-term purpose for this letter is to reveal Jesus, to reveal God's plan, and to encourage people under persecution. You cannot leave that out of your mind. When it says a revelation of Jesus Christ, it means you're not seeing him right. It means, John, you're not seeing who I am. You're not seeing churches, those of you under persecution. You're only looking at what you can see. You're not getting it. I need to pull the curtain back and show you reality. I need to let you know that the way you're living right now, this is not the sum total of it. You're living in the matrix. Can I please rip it apart and let you know there's a reality that's behind all of this? You're playing a game. I'm in charge. I've always been in charge. And no matter what these people say they're going to do to you, I have your ultimate destiny in the palm of my hands. No, they don't get to tell you what's going to happen to you. I do. No, your churches are not in danger. I have them. The first place we see Jesus is it says, I saw standing among seven lampstands, and it tells you which stand for the seven churches. I saw the Son of Man standing in the midst of them. 
Why is that important? Where is he at? Right in the center. He said, I never abandon anybody. I'm right there with you in your persecution. I'm standing right here. I'm not looking from a distance. I'm right engaged with you. I know your pain. I know your sorrow. I know everything that you're afraid of. And I'm standing right next to you. That's why it's encouraging. He's pulling back the curtain and revealing what's going on behind the scenes. Is Satan going to win? No. Absolutely not. I want you to think. Do you know how this whole story ends? Yeah, mostly because of Revelation. You end up saying, oh, there's a big battle and then Satan gets shut down. Well, it's kind of neat that it's so concise. That it just kind of wraps it all up and goes, yep, that's how it's going to go. That's encouraging to me. Can you imagine if we were still wondering how it was going to end? How many of you have ever read a novel and you're in a really tense part and you skip ahead to try to find out how it ends up and then you go back and read? Right? Because you want to relieve the tension. You want to go, please tell me they're okay. Then you can calm down and read the rest of the story because now you know it's going to go okay. Because you'd hate a book where it's going through and you're all excited and then the character dies at the end. You're like, what a waste. Why did I just read that book? I'm totally depressed now. We want to know the end of the story so we can be peaceful in the moment. Revelation does that. It says, just to let you know, we win. And so you can breathe easier now because it's going to be okay. That's why this is so encouraging. That's why this is so hopeful. So why do we wrestle with it so much? I will suggest to you that we wrestle with the heart of it because we're modern day Americans. Why is that important? Because when you read Revelation and I read Revelation, we're bummed out. A lot of death, a lot of war, not real excited about being beheaded. That kind of stuff does not make my day, right? I read all this stuff, pestilence, plague, famine, all this stuff. I'm getting totally depressed because my life is cake. That's why when you sit back in a comfortable environment in a nation that has a Christian hangover and everybody's all into this Ten Commandments concept, it's written in stone on some of our monuments. And we are in a country that is pretty much still rather pro-God. When you live in a nation like that, everything seems to be going relatively okay. We panic over the little tiniest persecution. Oh my gosh, a new bill is in front of the governor. Do you understand if you live in Darfur, Sierra Leone, Sudan, and you're getting ripped apart every day, you watch your children die, all your neighbors have been slaughtered because they're Christians? If you live in that world, this is encouraging. When you live all in constant peace and ease, no, of course it's disrupting. We don't want anything to bother our comfort, and Revelation bothers our comfort. We don't like that. But is it always going to be like this? No, it's not. And that's something that bugs us. We want everything to always go easy for us, and it's not going to. So sure, we get bothered by this, but to all those that are currently dying, it's nice to know it won't last forever, right? And I will tell you, the majority of the Christian church worldwide is under persecution. We are the minority. We are the ones that are the odd ones. So we don't like it. Another reason we don't like the book of Revelation is because we see angry Jesus. Right? We only love happy Jesus. Right? We want the one that's going to make us more money. And we want the one that's going to constantly bless us. And the one that always smiles and kind of looks at us and goes, you know what I mean. We like that guy, right? Hey, I'm grading on a curve, buddy. It's totally cool. You and I are great. We love that Jesus. We raise that Jesus up and we remake him in our own image. And boy, isn't it awesome to serve a great Jesus who's a super add-on to your life. Right? And he's going to make everything go okay. Whenever you have a problem, you rub that magic lamp. And Jesus will pop out and he will fix your problems. Is that who you see in Revelation? You see the commander of the army of God come riding out on a horse and start ripping people to shreds. You see him slay people. You see pestilence, plague, all of it. God says, go, tear the world apart. And you look and you go, I don't get it. That's not the God that I know. I don't want to worship him. Nobody should go to hell. That's mean. Right? Let me ask you a quick question. Do you want to worship a God who lets all the bad guys off? Do you want to worship an unjust judge? 
Do you want to worship a father who saw you be destroyed and didn't bat an eyelash? That's not what good dads do. You have a good heavenly father and you're going to watch him rain down some serious fury on those that would hurt his children. That's a God I can serve. I don't need a pansy God. I need a warrior God. And that's exactly what we see in Revelation. So let's take a look at it. What is in this book? 22 chapters. Oh my gosh, it's complicated. Kind of. But you know what? Crush it down and here's what you got. It ends up being rather simplified. Basically, you got a standard opening, right? A standard opening, just like all the other letters. And so it starts out, hey, I'm John. I got something to tell you real quick. Then we dive right into seven letters to seven different churches. And, he, and we're going to study those. They're super applicable. It's something you can engage with. It's exciting. He hands out seven letters to seven churches. Then he gets moved to see the throne room of God. This is amazing. The curtains are open and you get to see what it's like in heaven. It's an amazing two chapters where you look and you go, wow, there are some freaky creatures up there, right? Stuff's hovering and flying and four-faced creatures and you're seeing who's sitting on the throne and then there's the, the lamb that has been slain and all this exciting stuff. Well, then one comes out and has a scroll. And they said, this is sealed with seven seals, and this is going to be the judgment on earth. Who has the right to do it? And everyone cries, because no one has the right to do it. And the Lamb says, I'll do it. Boom, breaks seven seals to get that scroll open. Each seal is a judgment upon the earth. And you know what? It gets ugly. This is a huge vision of what's going to happen. The earth suffers dramatically under the breaking of the seven seals. Then, sure enough, it's opened up, and seven angels come out, and they blow seven trumpets. Right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It ends up wiping out a whole bunch of mankind because of the judgment of God. Then, during that stuff, two witnesses show up. I believe they're literal guys. We're going to have a big argument about this, who, the rep- who they represent and stuff like that. But I literally believe two witnesses show up and they start preaching in the world. After three and a half years, they get slaughtered. They lay out in the streets dead. After the third day, they rise again right in front of everybody and ascend up to the Father. Weird stuff like that happens. Then, right after that, he starts seeing all these little visions of what happened in the past and what's going to happen in the future that has a bunch of images like dragons and a woman was about to give birth and this represents Israel and then this represents Satan and there's a big battle and a third of the stars are swept out of the sky. Those visions happen. Then, the final plagues, God pours out seven bowls of his wrath. That makes everything ugly. It just tears the world apart. Mankind, all kinds of stuff. And then, Babylon falls. Babylon is representative of the kingdoms that are fighting against God. And Jesus wins. Everyone praises him. Yay, Jesus, you won. You took down the enemy. Satan is bound. Then there's a big discussion of a long reign of Christ. Does that mean a thousand year reign? What does it mean? Then Satan's released for a short time. Then boom, he's thrown into the lake of fire. Bad guys are thrown in the lake of fire. Big, huge judgment. Those that know Christ and commit their lives to him get to go to heaven with him. Those that do not get thrown into the lake of fire and it kicks off eternity. With a new heaven and a new earth. And he closes and says, thank you for listening. This has been John. That's the whole book. So as you look at it, it's not too hard. It's not beyond us. We can grab all those little stories and make sense of them to some degree. We can understand it. We can grab it. We can get our arms around it. And after we open this book, we'll be able to read it for devotional purposes and know what in the world we're talking about. Isn't it amazing that we get to open up another book that we never seem to open on our own? Final thoughts as we get into this is how are we supposed to read it? That's a big debate, okay? There's three things you need to understand. One of them was shared earlier. Three things that we need to understand together that really affect the book. And they all have to do with genre. Um, are we familiar with what genre means? Genre means a literary style. 
So, for example, poetry is a literary style. Would we all agree on that? Okay, so poetry, if I'm writing you a poem, are you going to assume that it's exact to reality? No, that's silly because it's a poem. Poems are supposed to be flowery and extreme. They're an exaggeration. Okay, well, there are three genres that are employed in the book of Revelation. The first one is that it's a letter. It's a letter just like Paul's letters. It has the same intro and the same closing, and it's a letter. It's a pastor's letter to churches. So a lot of it, you've got to read like a letter. As a matter of fact, it's the longest letter in the whole New Testament. But there's more to it. When John writes it, he doesn't say, this is my letter to you. He says, God said this. That's called prophecy. So it's prophetic. It's not just a letter. It's prophetic. And when you hear prophecy, that means it's not a man's opinion. It's reality. Because God said so. But it's the third genre that causes us all the problem. It's called apocalyptic. Apocalyptic is a genre of literature, a way of writing, that was super popular in John's day. As a matter of fact, the majority of all the apocalyptic literature that we have all came around the same period in history. It was going like gangbusters when John was writing. And as a matter of fact, John, what he receives from Christ is written in a very similar style to all those other apocalyptic traditions. But there are a few differences. Let me give you some similarities that he has with that tradition. When you see a bunch of apocalyptic literature, they have all this in common. Angels are your guide. Angels come down and show you around. Well, we're going to see that John has the same thing happen. It's written during intense persecution times. It uses vivid images and symbols. It depicts conflict between good and evil. And numbers mean more than just count units. All that is very same. John does it. Other apocalyptic outside the Bible does it. It's something that they all knew. They were all familiar with. And they would go, oh, we got an apocalyptic letter. Okay, gotcha. As a matter of fact, y'all, have you looked through Revelation and saw that number thing? Have you guys seen that? There are four major numbers that are used over and over and over and over and over. The first number is four. There's four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds, and the beast had four faces, and it had four sides, right? Four, used all over the place. Seven, that's the biggest one. Everything's seven. There were seven lampstands, and seven spirits, and seven thunders, and seven angels, and seven trumpets, and seven bowls, and seven seals, right? Four, seven, ten, that usually has to do with either time or kings, and the beast had ten horns, and it was ten kings, right? And 12. There are 12 apostles. There are 12 tribes of Israel. God has always used this stuff. This is not new. As a matter of fact, there is relatively no new image in the book of Revelation that's not used somewhere else. We always look at it and go, how strange. Have you ever read Ezekiel? (laughs) It's even stranger. It's not a lot of new information. The only thing that's new is how it's all shoved together in such a concise way. All the same stuff is told somewhere else in Scripture, but it's condensed and it's given an order. So it looks different to us. So is it just an apocalyptic letter? No, it's different, and it's different in three key ways. Number one, it claims to be inspired by God. It says God said this. That's different. Other apocalyptic traditions do not say that. So John was setting it aside. Going, you guys, I know it looks totally apocalyptic. I'm just telling you. This is God's stuff. Number two, it identifies its author. Almost every other apocalyptic writing is under a pseudonym. That's why people assume that he was writing under a pseudonym. Because all the other ones do. But he right up front goes, Hi, I'm John. I received some freaky stuff. I'd like to share it with you. Okay, that doesn't happen, right? And all the other literature. It's only John. And then the third thing is it actually predicts the future. Literally, it predicts the future, and you go, wow, that's weird. Okay, so no, it's not just a normal book. It's dramatically supernatural. But it has a lot of keys that we know how to interpret it because we know how to interpret apocalypse. Right? That helps us. It makes it easier. I have a billion things to say about that. We move on. 
The book of Revelation is not chronological. And I need you to understand that. There are only a few scholars that try to force it to be chronological. Okay? Um, it's kind of chronological. It's mostly chronological, but it has a lot of parallels. Where you would go, oh, that's funny. This sounds a lot like this later on in the book. And it creates some interesting literary style. But we need to understand it talks about some past events. Depending on how you look at it, it says a dragon is waiting for the woman to give birth. And then he wants to devour the male child. Okay, what does that sound like? Sounds like Israel was about to have the Messiah come and the dragon, who we know is Satan, was waiting to try to kill Jesus. That's past, right? So you're jumping around in time. So that's what kind of messes it up on this chronology thing. But here's the question you need to ask. What did John see next? Not what happened next. Do you see the difference? John saw it in a certain order, wrote it in that exact order. But he was seeing things out of order. That's what you need to wrestle with and understand. It's kind of chronological, kind of not. Now, the last major thing you need to understand about reading this is it relies heavily on the Old Testament. Out of all books in the New Testament... It alludes to the Old Testament more than any. Yet there's not one exact quotation from the Old Testament. Not one. But it relates to all these books. Listen to this. Mostly Daniel, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. But it also refers to all five books of the Old Testament. The first five. Judges, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and Job. It's loaded with Old Testament references. So, what does that mean? It means the more you know the Old Testament the more revelation seems obvious. Because you would go, oh, that's totally like Joel. Oh, that's totally like Ezekiel. Oh, I get it. This looks just like this. And last time this happened. So, oh, I get it. So while we teach this book, I'm going to have to go back in the Old Testament and tell you the original story so you know what it means. For example, do you remember the story of Israel coming out of Egypt and God hit him with ten plagues? Shockingly enough, those plagues end up showing up in Revelation. And you go, well, that's weird. Hailstones? That happened last time. Oh, that's weird. The water turns to blood? That happened last time. Oh, there's these? Oh, that happened last time. Not only that, but if you look at the last chapters of Revelation, it's a parallel to the creation story of the Garden of Eden. And you go, oh, so there was curse. Now there's no more curse. God created... The sun, moon, and stars, because before that there was just light. And in Revelation, there's no more need for sun, moon, and stars because the Lamb gives it its light. That's weird. The tree of life shows back up. Everything boop, 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 all pops back up and you have a recreation. It's amazing. So if you know the Old Testament, all of a sudden you keep going, yeah, I got it. There's a lot of keys to making this book easy. And I think we can employ those. Finally, I'll close with this. There are four common views on how to read the book of Revelation. You probably subscribe to one of these. We've got to be careful on adhering to only one view. But here are the common views. Number one, preterist. P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T. The preterist view. That means it almost exclusively deals with the first century world, John's day. That's it. Almost every event was future to John and past to us, right? It all happened right at the beginning. And it's all done now, except for the return of Christ. That's one view. Second view called historical. Write that one down. Historical. Believes that it's a long chain of events all through history from John's day to the return of Christ. And it's just history unfolding. That's as a matter of fact, that was the majority Protestant view in all the 1500s. If you want to read any of the Protestant guys, Martin Luther, Calvin, all those guys, they all held that view. Every one of them. Third view, futurist. Almost everything's in the future. Everything past chapter 4 is all going to happen right before Jesus returns. It's all future. And finally, the idealist view. Idealist. That means none of it should be taken literally. It is timeless truths that help every generation about the triumph of good over evil and ultimately a consummation with God in heaven. Okay? You got that? Those are four. Which one are we going to follow?
You guys know me better than that, right? We're going to be all over the place. We're going to be grabbing all sorts of pieces. Where this fits exactly, we talk about it. Where this fits, we talk about it. But my presentation to you, as I told you before, is not to tell you what to believe. My job is to get you to think critically. So I'm going to present these things out in front of you. And I will allow you to fight with them and move them and change them and know it for yourself. Then I will suggest to you and I'll say this one seems a little bit more biblical than this one in my opinion. And I will be able to guide you through the book from my perspective. But you can disagree with me. That's totally fine. I just want you to know what you're talking about. I just want you to know why you believe the way that you believe. Is that something we can do? All right. Well, we finish with an encouragement. This book, in my opinion, will change your life. You will begin to see a different Jesus. You will begin to see victory. You will begin to know that your life right here, right now, has a bigger picture behind it. And this whole time that we're living, it sure looks like things are chaotic. They're not. I want you to be able to take a deep breath today and know that God is in charge. I want you to take a deep breath and know that the future is secure. And I want you to be able to march out this week in victory, knowing that your Jesus is with you in your tough times, loving you all the while, and making sure as a warrior king that the enemy is shut down. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for a walk through what is perhaps, Lord, the most complicated book that we have seen. Yet, Lord, you reveal it to us in such a fashion to where you take something that's unknowable and make it obvious. I pray, Lord, that you would help us walk through this with humility, to walk through this with our eyes wide open and walk through it where we're gaining something and gleaning something and changing because of it. Lord, allow us to worship you and praise you as we see your heavens open up, as we see your plan unfold. May you be glorified in our hearts, in our minds, and from our mouths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.